All right. Life expectancy has risen by more than 50 years. Sorry, let me say that again. Has risen more in the last 50 years than in the previous 1,000 across the world. It's quite a bit, isn't it? Child mortality is lower than ever. In 1981, half of the people in the world lived below the poverty line. Now it's below 13%. There are more opportunities for education, no matter your background, than ever before. People are living longer lives. There are more choices. There are more comforts. There are more pleasures and experiences that could only be known by a tiny, and I mean tiny, minuscule, part of the population century or two ago. And if you live in the UK today, you have more of all of that than just about any other time in history. Yet still, joy can feel so out of reach. Why? Why is it that we still feel gloomy? Why is it that we're not walking around like Mr. Happy all the time. Why is it I'm not doing that? Why is it I get down, frustrated? Now, things are good relatively speaking. Of course, the world is not perfect. You don't have to go far to find that out. But if uh, if being a people of joy was dependent on circumstance, most of the time, we would be walking around Great big smiles in our faces. Super happy. Because today, in this place, you have more privileges than just about anyone else. If you asked somebody a couple hundred years ago, and they had the perspective of knowing where in the world and at what time in history they wanted to live up to the year 2021, it is very likely, despite worldwide pandemics, maybe they would say 2019, they would say the UK or maybe the US, and they would say 2019. Yet joy seems out of our reach. Deep down and steady joy that isn't dependent on circumstance can only come when our Savior enters in. So I'm going to read to us again from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. And so if you've got a Bible, would you grab hold of it just now? Read through it with me. I'm going to start in verse 2. It said, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We're zooming in on verses three to five and we're talking about joy. And the first thing I want to address is that joy has been lost. Joy has been lost and we need to get real with that. And I'm going to spend most of my time on this part because I think that in today's culture, in Glasgow in 2021, this is the bit, bit we just totally don't get. This is the bit we really struggle with. even convinced that we in the church always get it. The people of Judah had a, a couple of major problems that were stealing their joy. Real problems, but problems that actually can help us identify what our problems are today. In fact, the problems of the world at any time in history. The first was an external problem. They were in constant fear of Assyrian invasion and attacks. They were constantly dealing with lost territories, with lost sons, and even torture in their own towns. If you lived in the region of Galilee, you would be terrified. Their whole existence was in the shadow of these brutal Assyrians. Like the people of Aleppo in Syria, or the people of Afghanistan, South Sudan, or Eastern Ukraine. There was good reason to assume that they had lost their joy. But if that wasn't bad enough for people of, Ju people of Judah to be weighed down by this external evil, the Assyrians, they were also chained to an internal problem, sin. Lewis pointed out last week that people were so desperate for help in those days that they were consulting mediums and spiritualists in the world around them, God's people. That, of course, is sin, but it isn't the heart of sin. Sin is actually much more pervasive than that. Sin is actually much bigger than that. Sin is something that I think we miss. I think we hear the preacher on Buchanan Street and we make the assumption that sin is just behavior modification. It's just bad behavior. And so we address it with holiness and that is behavior modification. Modify your behavior and then you'll enter into this Christian way of life. No, no, no. No, no, that's not what the Bible says. It's much bigger than that. It's, it's, it, it seeps into every part of our society, into every part of who we are. If we go back to the very first words of Isaiah, we might begin to see why the problem of sin is about way more than just behavior. Not less than, that is sin, but wider, deeper, and at the heart of every wrong thing in the whole earth says this, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, during 
uh, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's man manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. And here we go. Here's the crux of it. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. The internal problem in their hearts was that they did not trust in the Creator. They did not trust in God, and instead they trusted in other things for satisfaction and joy. They looked elsewhere instead of looking to God alone. Their hearts are drawn to other things to make them happy. They try to fashion their own happiness with God substitutes, and all of us have been guilty of that. Some of my friends used to, I used to play rugby with have a very clear picture of this in their own lives. And actually you talk to them and they'd even admit much of it. Some of them went on and did really well, got professional contracts. Some of them even went on and played for Scotland. And the more that they tasted that success, the more it became part of their identity. The more more that became the source of their identity, the source of their joy. And so when an injury came, and then they were never quite the same after that, or they inevitably had to retire because they were getting old, Unfortunately, all the guys I used to play with are now retired. It's an inevitable thing. But they would often find themselves really lost. Where's where's my identity now? Where's the the crowd that used to cheer when I made that big tackle or made that break? Big men kind of strutting around fulfilling big dreams. And the world looked at them and went, wow, I wish I could have some of that. And they loved it. I don't blame them. But when you lose something like that, something you base your identity on, you find your world starts to crumble. Even living out these dreams of our culture we often find ourselves in a state of joyless gloom. This incredible place that we live, when we compare it in relative terms to the rest of history, even the dreams fulfilled in that culture leave us joyless. Now, we have what we might call a post-Christendom issue here when it comes to explaining this. What I mean by that is that now that society has kind of moved away from believing in general terms that there is a God and that the church has a place in society to live by the morals of the Bible. We move on to this place where everyone assumes that they know what this means, what sin is, when really they don't. 
I don't know if I've ever spoken to an unbeliever who really understands what sin is. I don't think they want to. We hear the preacher saying, you need to be saved from your sins. And they hear one of two things, depending on what generation they're in, right? One of them is, okay, I've got to change and be a, a do-gooder, a Ned Flanders type if we're from that generation, okay? Or it's actually the opposite of that, a Trump-loving, climate-change-denying bigot, depending on which generation you're from, you will identify one of those two views. Now, if that is what people think the Christian message of salvation means, you're only ever going to hear a message of hope like the one in verse 4 that Isaiah and view it with cynicism. Of course you are. Yeah, right. Cheers, Paul. That's going to happen. Yeah. That's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. We're just going to defeat these big Assyrians. No problem. Our nation will expand. Our territory will expand. Yeah, of course. No problem, mate. Yeah, whatever. And, and yeah, like, our joy is just going to return to us. Will it, mate? Very good. Move on. Religious nut. Even if you want to believe it, deep down, you won't, and your heart will look for answers in the world around you instead. See, God wants your heart, and you keep giving it to the world. It's a bit like when the uh, insecure teenager shares that pic of themselves. Face made up, big duck face on Instagram. Her friends respond, OMG, so pretty. You've seen it? And then there's loads of comments like that. And she says thanks, and she wants to believe it. But it doesn't stop her from continuing to cake her face with makeup, spending hours looking on Instagram at the before and after pics of people on diets, workouts, makeovers. Or her taking to heart that one comment from that sad wee troll who said something brutal. Because just saying something doesn't make it true. Just saying something doesn't make it true. And deep down we know it. So if this was all Isaiah said, I want to ask you, would you have believed him living in that day? Wouldn't you just regard it as false optimism? And isn't it just false optimism to think that pandemics and the problems of our lives won't plague us, pardon the pun, for the rest of our existence? Aren't we just destined to a life where our joy is dependent on circumstances? One moment we're happy, the next moment we're feeling melancholy, and we exist like that until death swallows us up. Well at least will become plant food. That's the cynic's response. Isaiah helps us out. He points us to two moments here, subtly, in Israel's history, as to why these words of hopeful expectation will be fulfilled. Why there will be a joy like no other that's coming. And the first is the exodus. 
when God's people were yoked in slavery to the world's superpower of that time, Egypt. That's why I describe their current situation as, verse 4, a yoke that burdens them, a bar across their shoulders, and the beatings of the rod of their oppressors. Now, if you don't know what a yoke was, a yoke was like a harness, okay, and it would be put onto an ox or another animal, and it would be used uh, to, for them to pull a weight, maybe a plough or something like that in the field. And it was heavy and burdensome. And they were owned by someone. So the owner would put this load on them and have them pull it and do the work for them. Israel was owned by Egypt over a millennia before. And now in Isaiah's day, the people were owned by their sin and the fear of the Assyrians. They were trapped, enslaved. The weight of life was like the bar across their shoulders of the Israelites in Egypt and the taskmaster that their God substitutes had become were beating them down. What they were replacing God with was beating them down. Sin at its essence is worshipping something else other than God and in the end it will be a burden that you cannot bear. It's impossible for the stateless people with no rights or power to ever escape their oppressor. Moses believed God and he brought Pharaoh to his knees. The whole nation of Egypt, the superpower that looked undefeatable, was brought down. The Israelites escaped and even when they pursued them and they got to the Red Sea and again it looked impossible. God parted the waters and they walked through onto dry land and their enemies were crushed behind them. And then in the next generation, God parts more waters and he crumbles the walls of fortresses to enter the land and lead them to victory. Now that's one moment that Isaiah wants to remind them of. Then he wants to remind them of another one. The other moment is a period called the Judges. And in that period, the Midianites were one of the people groups who were fighting against the Israelites. And now, that period of the Judges, just to remind you, is that period uh, just before the kings, but after Joshua's generation. So Joshua's generation... They kind of, in the end, they don't take all the land like they're supposed to, do you remember? And so then it just gets chaotic and messy. And for a period of time, in different places, and they have different roles. And then eventually God brings kings after the people demand it. What's well, in that little period there? And what we see is at the beginning of verse 4, this mention of the defeat of the Midianites. What is that about? Why is Isaiah talking about the defeat of the Midianites? Well, do you remember what Gideon did? Do you remember the story of Gideon? He's referring to that story right now. If you don't know that story, what happens is God calls on Gideon to go and rescue the people from three towns in Galilee. Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, which happens to be 
exactly the same place that needs rescued right now in this little period of history. And when he does, he says to Gideon, no, 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 your army's too big, cut it back. And again, he says, your army's too big, cut it back. Your army's too big, cut it back. And he does it in different ways. And then they go out, only 300 of them, against a huge army, much better equipped than them. It looks like an impossibility. Why would God do that? Why would God weaken them? Why does God weaken them in that moment to then go and give them the victory? That makes no sense. Why would he do that? This is the grace of God. God was showing the people of Judah that when they are desperate, and the idea of God being powerless is most popular in the land, like I would suggest it is now in our day in Scotland, God is most likely to show himself. When the culture around us says, God's got nothing, he's just symbolic, he's got no power, I don't regard him as powerful. I don't fear him. Watch out, because that moment by that moment is often the moment God steps in and shows his power. Isaiah can confidently say, with the present tense expectation of what is to come, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, shattered the bar across their shoulders, shattered the rod of their oppressor. A victory was coming that would do away with the need for a kingdom won by warriors swords, and blood. God was going to bring a victory that, as verse 5 says, will mean all the fighting can be over, and yet the border will stretch out to the nations. A new kingdom was coming. Joy was lost, but joy has come. At the beginning of our meeting, we read out John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. God, in his ultimate saving act, does what we saw with with Gideon and the Midianites and does what we saw with the Israelites in Egypt. He chooses to become weak taking on our weakness to save the whole world. The king of David's line, so brilliantly displayed at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, was bringing a new kingdom, stretching out every every tribe and tongue and nation. To do it, Jesus didn't come wielding a sword. He emptied himself to become flesh. The God of all the cosmos was an embryo. The word of God came to us wordless. The creator had come to us dependent on the mother he created. The highest king came low to serve us. The power of God came to be our weakness. Here he was, our promised Messiah, and he had not come in power, but by emptying himself. The word of God has come. We see this picture, it's part of the story that we love to share at Christmas, 
of the shepherds out in their fields. Shepherds with lives like ours, up and down, probably much more difficult than ours. That night they're having an ordinary night when an angel comes proclaiming good news. It says, the glory of the Lord shines around them. And how do they respond? They respond by rejoicing. They respond with joy because the joy of the Lord had come. They go to find the baby and they rejoice. God incarnate, the source of true joy had arrived. And of course, Isaiah would eventually prophesy how this joy of the Lord could be given to the world. Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus takes all our grief and sorrow, and instead he gives us joy. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was one of those faithful remnants. One of those people who continued to follow after the promises of God, even when it looked like God was powerless. She knew he wasn't. And what happened to her was she received Jesus, literally, in her. Not by anything she had done, but by miraculous conception. And that is a glorious picture of what we receive when we put our trust in Jesus. You see, we don't work to receive Jesus. We don't work to receive joy. We receive joy by grace. Mary received Jesus by this glorious gift, having done nothing to deserve it. Nothing to achieve it. And we are the same. We do nothing to receive it. There is not one thing that you can work to do in order to receive Jesus, in order to receive joy. Simply trust that on that cross, he took all your sorrow and all your grief and all your sin and he became your substitute. You've been substituting him for false gods. He substitutes himself so that you can know him and receive joy. There is no better message than that. Any other message you hear, people will say, you need to do this, and you need to do this, and then you'll get that. No, not with Jesus. He realizes you can't do it. He realizes that the joy that you try to find in everything else, you will never find unless he does it for you. And he did because he loves you. In John Calvin's Institutes, it says this, this is the exchange which out of his measureless goodness he has made with us that receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us, that taking our weakness upon himself, he has strengthened us by his power, 
that having received our, our mortality, he has given us immortality, that descending to the earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us, that becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with us. Now that is a reason to rejoice. Oh, holy night, you know that hymn? It says, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Do you feel weary? Come and rejoice, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Joy has come. Joy is here. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. God is with us. Jesus came to establish a lasting joy. John 17, Jesus prays before he goes to the cross for the disciples and all would follow him that they would have the full measure of his joy even while they're in the world. You are no longer yoked to the slavery of your sin or the oppression of restrictions and circumstance. Sin does not reign in you any longer. You are declared holy because Jesus has swapped his righteousness for your sin. You can't mess this up. That's good news, isn't it? You can, however, choose to live in a way that means you don't receive the joy of this freedom. Grace is won for you in its fullness. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it to the Galatian believers. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It's a joy not dependent on what others think, on what you achieve, on how good you look, on how many holidays or fancy meals you have this year. It's a joy that is based on knowing God. Not knowing about him, but really knowing him, walking with him through your life. Now you have received sonship. You have received what it means. You are now a son or a daughter of God. But you can receive, continue to receive more and more of the goodness of God by walking in obedience with him. It's the joy Jesus was praying about in John 17, a joy that comes when we walk with our Father, a joy that he truly lived out. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus only did what the Father instructed him to do. He, he walked in obedience with him. He walked with him. He loved him. And that is what Jesus is saying we can have with him. The true source of joy is here and available, but as Jesus goes on to pray, we will face difficulties, so this is not fake smiles, okay? This is not fake smiles and the denial of the true pain and suffering that's going on in your life. It is still a joy you can have in those circumstances. 